Welcome to NFP's Insights from the Experts podcast. Each episode showcases timely expertise and perspective from members of the NFP community, delivering information, analysis, and solutions that address our clients' most significant challenges. Hello, and welcome to the Benefits Compliance Podcast. My name is Patrick Myers, and I am here with my colleague, Suzanne Spradley. We are attorneys at NFP, and we use this podcast to discuss regulatory and other issues impacting group health plans. Today, we are going to continue the discussion surrounding mental health parity, but from the view of litigation. Suzanne, could you give us some background? Yes, and and I say we're going to do it via litigation. We've certainly talked about the different guidelines that have been put forth for mental health parity and some of the the, um, additional requirements on plans. But today we're going to look at 2021 and look at uh, some key litigation from a both private litigant and also enforcement action by the DOL. Um, Generally, when you look at lawsuits that are brought under the Mental Health Parity and Addiction Equity Act, MHPAEA, as I'll refer to it, they allege that, of course, like a plan or an administrator has placed limitations on certain mental health treatments that were not similarly placed on med surge treatments. And when we look at the lawsuits in 2021, many of them targeted wilderness therapy or residential treatment centers, but it also went certainly beyond that. And, and we'll discuss that a bit today, but we could certainly expect that these litigation Um, in this area will continue in 2022 due to some of the success that we saw for plaintiffs in 2021. And before we get to those losses, let's start with a quick level set on mental health parity. Well, and and this is obviously something that many of you are familiar with. It's been around with the enactment since 2008 with the enactment of the MHPAEA. Generally, it just it prohibits group health plans from setting coverage limitations that apply more restrictly to mental health and substance use disorder um, benefits than to med surge benefits, medical surgical benefits. And we look at them in two different ways. We look at quantitative limitations and non-quantitative limitations. Obviously quantitative is pretty easy to evaluate because it looks at things like co-payments and deductibles. But when we get to non-quantitative treatment limits or NQTLs, as I'm going to refer to, to them so we don't get tongue-tied, they're certainly more challenging to evaluate. And that's really where a lot of the focus is in either um, the, the enforcement activities or the private litigation. Um, NQTLs, as, as it sounds, are non-numerical uh, restrictions or exclusions. So for example, it would include a prior authorization requirement, a fail-first policy, step therapies, uh, medical management standards, and and when we look at just restrictions based on like provider type or geographic location or facility type, these are all types of NQTLs and certainly have been the subject of litigation and enforcement. Before we discuss the litigation, let's touch briefly on enforcement at the federal level. Well, enforcement at the federal level is by the Employee Benefit Security Administration, EBSA, and that is the enforcement arm of the DOL. And it's certainly been limited in its enforcement activity because the MHPAEA did not explicitly state how a plan was supposed to demonstrate compliance with parity or document parity. And so this changed in uh, the end of the last year with the Consolidated Appropriations Act, the CAA, and it amended the MAPHEA. And this is a lot of acronyms. I know it's hard to keep them all straight, but it's it amended the law um, applying mental health parity requirements. And now it requires plans to 
provide a comparative analysis. And so that's really where the rub is going to be for 2022. Um, and they must provide it upon request to one of the tri-agencies, which is uh, this, to the Secretary of Treasury, the Secretary of Labor, or the Secretary of HHS, or any relevant state agency or an individual, an interested in individual beneficiary. So it also required the tri-agencies to issue a report to Congress on the results of um, compliance oversight activities in this area for 2021. And so that report was published on January 25th and it's quite interesting. Um, it goes through not only some of the compliance activities, but it also goes through um, in, in, in excuse me, it also indicates that they intend to promulgate additional regulations in 2022, which is something certainly welcomed by plans and anyone trying to administer mental health parity. It also said that they were seeking to enhance their enforcement tools. So we can expect to see increased enforcement in 2022. What's interesting is in the report, the DOL said that they had issued 156 letters to plan sponsors requesting information about comparative analysis for NQTLs. And they stated that nobody in this first wave had earned a passing grade. And so at least they're all in good company, but um, that's certainly not, uh, you know, not a good thing, I guess, overall in, in the view of the DOL. Wow. I mean, the fact that no one passed indicates to me that plan sponsors can learn a lot from this report. Could you explain some of the deficiencies they cited in the report? Well, some of the deficiencies, when you just look at how they were stated, is not necessarily that you know, that instructive, but we'll walk through them. They said that certainly conclusory um, assertions without specific supporting evidence was not good. And they really seem to want more detail, more explanation. Um, they also noted that in terms of their lack of meaningful analysis or comparison, when they looked at like tables that the respondents provided that had a table with two columns, for example, one side for med surge benefits, the other side for mental health um, and substance use disorder benefits. And then they had some kind of standard text in both columns. And they said that really didn't provide enough analysis and it really lacked a meaningful comparison of the two. And they also said that the plans had failed to demonstrate compliance of NQTL as applied. Most comparative analysis provided by the plans failed to evaluate the relative stringency of how the NQTL is applied to mental health versus medical surgical benefits. And so um, I think one aspect that was particularly helpful, they did list some steps that sponsored had taken to bring their plans into compliance. And it included things like um, removing some really common exclusions. For example, ABA therapy for autism, uh, medication assisted treatment for opioid use disorder, nutritional counseling for mental health substance use disorder. Those were all eliminated as an exclusion. They also showed removing limitations on urine drug testing for substance use disorder and blanket pre-certification for mental health and substance use disorder benefits. So that just provides some specific examples of things that plans had done to try to comply with mental health parity requirements. Wow. Oh, let's uh, turn to litigation. Well, um, for one, keep in mind that parity is a standalone ERISA action, and I'm going to just talk about ERISA for just a moment. And I know this gets a bit technical, but it's helpful. Um, when a plaintiff brings an action under ERISA, there are two forms of recovery. The first being 
under the recovery of benefits provision. That's what you typically hear as a recovery. And it's when the beneficiary will recover the amounts owed um, under the terms of the plan. So for example, there's been a wrongful denial of coverage. They then recover the coverage amounts um, for that denial. Now courts have begun to make it clear that plaintiffs can also assert a parity violation under the parity equitable remedies clause. And this allows beneficiaries to enjoin or stop an inappropriate action or determination and seek equitable relief to redress the violation. So it's really um, a different form of recovery, allowing them to require plans to evaluate benefits in a certain way. Um, and because they're now allowing these two different pathways for plaintiffs, um, we've certainly seen plaintiffs take more of an interest. It should be noticed that ERISA does not provide for punitive damages. Sometimes that's where we start to see some really large recoveries is on the punitive area. And ERISA does not allow for that. Just as an overall view of, in terms of like the number of cases, um, when, when we look at at least the federal parity law, there were about 40 published court opinions in 2021, about 45% or almost half of them involved a full or partial favorable ruling for the plaintiff. Um, they were adjudicated in about 11 states with over 50% of the cases being adjudicated in Utah. Uh, probably because it has uh, a large number of residential treatment centers and outdoor behavioral health programs in that state. But just a, a little bit of facts as it pertains to at least um, litigation um, as, as it concerns federal parity laws. Okay. Well, given that there are so many out there, let's focus on one particular case. Um, what can you give, what background can you give us on WIT versus United Behavioral Health? So WIT is, is notable. It is certainly a large case and involves United Healthcare, United Behavioral Health. And in short, it's a class action um, based on, of course, denial of insurance claims of thousands of individuals who sought mental health and substance use treatment, disorder treatments um, and coverage under their plans. And the plaintiffs in WIT asserted two different claims against UBH. One was a breach of fiduciary duty and secondly was arbitrary and capricious denial of benefits. And they base this on the fact that UBH has the two different guidelines, the level of care guideline and the coverage determination guidelines. These are internal guidelines. And they argued that these did not comport with generally accepted standards of care for behavioral health. So, for example, um, they argued that these guidelines were overly restrictive um, when they were comparing medical necessity, and they were far more restrictive than those that are considered generally accepted standards of care. And keep in mind, by the way, that the plaintiff's health insurance plans did provide for coverage of treatment that's consistent with generally accepted standards of care in this area. So that's what we're looking to as the as kind of the threshold for coverage. Um, but what they found was that UBH's internal developed guidelines were really intended to, to only approve coverage when there was a, an acute episode or a crisis, like when a patient is suicidal or they're suffering from a severe withdrawal, whereas um, it didn't allow for coverage in uh, situations that were less than acute. And the court agreed with the plaintiffs and said that, you know, when you look at standards of care that are generally accepted for um, behavioral health or for, you know, mental health or, or substance use disorder, chronic conditions should also be treated. The court held that their guidelines also improperly required reducing levels of care, like removing someone from a residential treatment to an out, outpatient therapy, even if the treating provider 
consistent with standard of care, believe that maintaining a higher level of care was more effective. So they were really able to show that their internal guidelines were not consistent with what coverage was to be provided under the plan. Now, if you really want, you're really bored and you want to really dig into this, the court had like 106 page findings, effect and conclusions of law that addressed all the different levels of care guidelines that were used by UBH at that time. And they identified eight different generally accepted standards of care and how UBH um, guidelines failed to um, comply with those standards. And, and uh, it's, it's, it's a good read if you're really deep into this area. Interestingly, they also found that UBH had failed to comply with certain state mandates for evaluating medical necessity. For example, Connecticut, Illinois, and Rhode Island all require that when you review substance use disorder claims for medical necessity, that the insurer applies a criteria that's consistent with the American Society of Addiction Medicine standards. So I note that because if you have participants in those states, you want to make sure that that criteria is um, being utilized to evaluate medical necessity. So what was the result of this case? The WIT court required UBH to reprocess more than 67,000 claims for mental health treatment, and they appointed a special master to oversee UBH's compliance um, with this reprocessing of claims. Yeah, that's a big case. Um, there was another big case uh, by the DOL against insurers in 2021. Could you tell us about that one? Yeah, so the DOL entered into two large settlement agreements with UBH, again, UBH and United Healthcare in Oxford, in the amount of $15.6 million, um, again, for violations of the mental health parity laws. $10 million of that was for private litigants, you know, so the whole amount was not just a fine, a significant portion of it went to private litigants. But it's the first time the DOL initiated litigation to enforce MHPAEA against a health insurer. Um, in the 13 years since its initial passage. So previously, when the DOL found a non-compliance, they would require the benefit plan sponsor to take corrective action, like they'd have to make changes to their plan policy, reprocess um, improperly denied claims, and then they'd frequently reach a voluntary agreement with the administrative service provider insurer to take corresponding action across all of their benefit plan sponsor clients that had similar policies. Um, but this was the first time that it had taken direct enforcement action against an administrative service provider. And they used uh, their authority under ERISA Section 502A5, which is um, an independent litigation authority. And uh, because the MHPAA nor the CAA authorizes the DOL to take direct enforcement action against administrative service providers. So this was really kind of unique. And the use of it is is really more of a significant reputational impact on the service provider than just entering into a voluntary agreement. Um, but it's also an indication that the DOL is prioritizing enforcement actions directly against those carriers and those service providers rather than the health plans themselves, the health plan sponsors, because they know that sponsors often are left in the dark as it pertains to mental health parity and, and uh, the compliance with these laws. It is really interesting. And can you tell me about some of the NQTL at issue in this case? Well, um, some of the, for example, they had, they saw a disparity between reimbursement rates that applied to that mid-level med surge as compared to mental health providers. So uh, taking a step back for all professional providers, United started with a third party rate set by either Medicare or an independent vendor like 
Fair Health or Viant, and uh, they applied that for all professional providers. But then for non-physician providers, United applied a 25% discount for psychologists and a 35% discount for master's level counselors um, as compared to the physician rate. But in contrast, they didn't impose a similar discount for non-physician med surge providers. So like for nurses or physical or occupational therapists. So the DOL concluded that this disparate approach to applying a rate reduction, a rate reduction for um, those mid-level providers uh, really violated the MH, MHPAEA's comparability and stringency requirements. They also noted that United had applied the algorithm to identify and manage medical necessity to nearly all outpatient psychotherapy services while only using an outlier technique on a very limited set of med surge outpatient services. And so Unfortunately, the complaint really didn't go into a lot of detail concerning these outlier management um, data sets. And so it's difficult to see how they were not comparable. But it, it's still important to note that um, the DOL does consider the use of any NQTL approach on a large majority of mental health as compared to a smaller relative portion of med surge benefits to constitute a mental health parity violation. So you really want to look into not only the limitation itself, but how it's applied. Um, if it's applied broadly to mental health and more limited to med surge, that could be an indication of a violation. And then lastly, I think it's important to note that the DOL really took note of the disclosures and decided that the disclosures were not sufficiently individualized. So they expect issuers and plans to produce responsive NQTL disclosures that describe the specific application of the treatment limitation to a particular participant. So this is really extremely onerous obligation on plans and something we hope to have further guidance on this year, as well as further guidance just in general with mental health parity and NQTL comparative analysis. So of course, if some comes out, we will be reporting on this and certainly uh, provide additional information. Well, mental health parity has certainly given us a lot to get our arms around this year and certainly a lot to look forward to this year. Um, but uh, thank you so much, Suzanne, for walking us through the litigation. Certainly. Thank you for um, joining us. And as we like to say, that's a wrap. That's a wrap.